Welcome guys to the official Pre-Do-Typing podcast, where we basically talk about everything to do with Pre-Do-Typing. And so in this season, you will learn about different aspects of the methodology, hear from different Pre-Do-Typing practitioners, and even see us try to make our own, all in the spirit of validating your idea with your own data. I'm Jonathan Sun. And I'm Robert Scrub. All right, guys. So our next guest is the founder of Blue Space, specializing in using lean startup techniques, including prototyping for corporate innovation. A fun fact about him is that he spent a few years living across all of Asia. Please welcome Thomas Potifant. So you Thomas, Jonathan Robert. Yeah. Um, so the first question I have to ask, um, as kind of like a sort of, you know, um, audience, uh, audience, listener, kind of like icebreaker sort of thing is, uh, what's the most exotic thing you've ever tried while living in Asia? Exotic. Well, well, you probably, the first thing everybody's thinking about is, um, all the lovely beaches, but, uh, you know what it's, um, I think I'll probably say more exciting thing because the way I travel, I love to get to know people and I get to know how people like, they, they live and work and, you know, and see everything where tourists don't go. So I think, you know, having spent six years in Asia, you know, you, I get to know people quite well. So I think I, it might sound quite boring, but I think actually getting to know how people they live and work, that really was quite exciting for me because it really tells you a lot. And, and I think I use that in, in, in the way I work because it's, it's the culture side as well. And I have to say, you know, I, I spent a few weeks up north uh, in Thailand. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen as many temples in my life, you know, but it's quite different. So it gives you, gives you into the whole history of a, of a culture. So uh, I'm sure people have wanted to hear about beaches, but, you know, it, it, it's just too obvious, I guess. Yeah, awesome. All right, Robert, do you want to kick off with the first actual prototyping question? I think I want to center straight out on what you had talked about uh, outside the recording just a minute ago about uh, the actual application of prototyping in the real world and its application with human-centered design and with humans in general. Um, yeah. What's been your experience to date with that? It's um, so a bit about my background because I think I've probably established a bit uh, why I, I have this view of why I think it's, it's so important and what I've done in the past because I grew up in transformation. And I've grown up in, in very traditional ways of looking at problems. And uh, so we react to some data and we make some decisions and we go straight into, we, I think we skip a lot of very critical steps and we go straight into building a brief and then we start building the actual service mo uh, product or even your business process. And then we launch and then realize afterwards it's not working. And I think to me that that's kind of, you know, uh, very, very frustrating because uh, we, that means we're always dealing with problems. Um, I actually started to get into, and I guess it's part of the concept of prototyping, uh, I would say about six, seven years ago, because um, I worked for one of the big banks and, and we had to change a, a whole operating model. Uh, but we worked in, in an environment where things have changed 11 months earlier. And so we just wanted to try new techniques and rather than just presenting another 150 page document and say, this is now how the new organization is going to work. We tried to change the tax. So, so we actually put on, we started to become more creative and think about how can we do this differently? And uh, so we, we, we took some of those principles and also a little bit from design thinking, et cetera, but it was more about the collaborative nature, you know? So we, we build small ideas uh, on the spot in the room with people. 
and it and it really what it helped us doing was we were all starting to get on the same page and you create alignment so it's not like saying this is the best practice this is how your new operating models should look like but we literally just put it there in front of them so we actually build those concepts together and, and i think it's powerful because if you really want to land those changes afterwards you, you've got to have to have people aligned to, to the whole idea but as i said i learned very early on that you can give people two pieces of text and we read it and we interpret it completely different. And it's the same with ideas. So we need to get people to, if I say it's a red color, you know, we all have to agree it's the same red color because there's so many different variations of red. Um, and so, so I, I just use that principle more and more and, uh, and, and we're now doing it. Uh, I'm, I'm working with a client at the moment. Um, we got to think differently because they're working with uh, features they're gonna add to a, uh, a software um, underwriting system they have. And actually what you find is that they just wanna build everything, but sometimes they can't even articulate to a customer what it is it's gonna do. What's that feature gonna do for them? So we're using the same concept and trying to just very simplify it and get them to build very simple models to what it could look like. So we don't have to be technical, but we just need to visualize what the idea would look like. So I think it's, it's a bit, I think people are getting it, but for some organization, it's still very, um, I think it's, you take it by surprise sometimes because they think you're just trying to skip through it very quickly. So they need to see the value, but I think they, once they follow the process, they start to see the value. But as a concept up front, it could be quite difficult to digest. How big of a factor is risk aversion to this entire process? Because prototyping posits that you have to learn from failure, but I would imagine some larger corporations and some uh, companies in general don't really see that as an option given that their things may be very tight in terms of like their market growth or their revenue. So what have you experienced? Um, so I got a long uh, career in financial services. And I think it's probably one of the most risk averse uh, industries you can work in. Um, I think I think you have, uh, from a hierarchical point of view, it people like to hide behind their titles. That means that they also feel they are there at that point in time, their career, so they make the decisions. So if that's something they don't buy into, it could be quite difficult. And 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 try to get people to create or gather kind of cross-functional teams is very very difficult. So just introducing a concept, and, and you've got to think about it because they, they work with so many different uh, consulting organizations that they get introduced to so many new concepts. So why would that stand out? I, I think the conversation I tend to have with them is not talk too much about the prototyping, but it's more talk to them about what's the risk of not being a position where you, can, where you introduce maybe disruption technology to make your customer experience better. And what we really do is working with them to help understand how do we remove uncertainties through experimentation. And that's really where we get into the conversation because once we start on uh, talk about more uh, faster to market, we're talking about uh, cost of failure. I think that's when you start to, to get them hooked on the idea, but you've got to have to talk that language and you're really going to have to understand their pain points. But I definitely see it a lot in financial service because they're so risk averse. It's, if I do this, would I put myself at risk? And so you've got to have to reassure your stakeholders and the sponsors that we're not putting you at risk, we're actually eliminating risk over time and we're actually putting you in a stronger position to make the right decisions. Uh, Robert, you're on mute. So basically the, it's, it's um, risk aversion on the political front and as well as through the company itself. 
No, absolutely. I think you're spot on. It's uh... So from your, your perspective, is there a particular type of person that's more aligned with prototyping versus one that is not? Um, yes, they are. I think uh, from my experience, I, I think first of all, first you, once you're further down the, the, the layers of an organization, I think management is always my biggest obstacle. Uh, or biggest challenge. I'm not saying we can't convert them, but uh, a lot of people I work with in organizations that I've done work uh, consulting for has been uh, head of transformation. And a lot of them are actually working with very tight budgets and they have to deliver results all the time. And so, so that's actually a way in and that's a way where you can met, you can actually have that conversation and you can introduce it. Um, but, but I think it's, it, it's really back to, to the fact that, uh, if I give you a good example, I worked with one of the large uh, banks in the UK a few years back, and we stepped in and we looked at 169 uh, initiatives, uh, literally based on what the, the, the way they got to those initiatives, they looked at the market and they looked at all their competitors and say, what they're doing and we don't, we have to do it. Uh, so we started really taking it back. And, and one of the concepts we looked at was customer correspondence because they just realized we can save 30 million pounds a year if we get everybody to go on online banking. But once you start looking at the days and you realize less than 50% of your customers are actually online, that just took that entire plan apart. And that, that, so we, we introduced something similar. So we ran small workshops to say, okay, our pain point sits elsewhere, but how do we get to that point where we start creating value for our customers? So, so I, I can. I think for me, uh, working with people who actually have to deliver results and being uh, measured in that sense, I think you, you can talk that game with them and they can understand the concept. So they're always looking for new ideas because they scrutinize. They don't have the resources they need. So they have an urgency to do deliver things quicker, cheaper, and with less resources. Uh, I think at a management level, you have different uh, agenda um, because what we find is you find a lot of um, sponsors get excited about a project. They sign it off and then they move on to something else and they lose interest. Um, so for them, there's no kind of stake in really going into the whole prototyping. They just want to see the outcomes and they want to see the benefits. But I think from my experience, it's really working with the people who has underground, who has to deliver results. These are the ones that, from my experience, that really are the ones that you can get hooked on this idea. It's interesting, I think, um, how you've mentioned um, kind of like, you know, financial services, you know, being a heavily kind of almost risk averse kind of like industry. You know, it's um, I think a couple a couple of things I've seen recently, you know, kind of like attest to it. Like, I think one is, you know, HSBC, you know, recently um, banning, you know, the use of cryptocurrency, you know, for their um for uh, for payments and you know for for money transactions which um i don't know it's a bit of a controversial sticking point but you know um i think you know digital currency is the future so i think you know them banning it probably isn't always the best um the best thing you know to future proof their organization but i think my big question is like you know me not knowing so much about financial services what do you where do you think that that high risk aversion comes from within the financial services industry? Um, I think a lot is legacy. I think a lot of it is, is history. Um, I think from a legacy perspective, first of all, uh, the biggest worry in most banks, let, let's, let's break it up. I think we're talking here established banks. Uh, we're not talking the uh, challenger banks. We're not talking the fintechs because that's a completely different ball game. 
thing. If you go to the established banks, you've always been worried that your technology will not stack up and deliver, you know, because the, the worst thing that can happen is suddenly you can't withdraw your money from your account or you can't uh, deposit money into your account or we can't do loan. So, but some of the banks have been working all my uh, mainframes for, for years, you know, and, and so they've just been relying on very old technology and they always felt if we disrupt that, you know, we will still be able to deliver the service tomorrow. If I'm then looking at the challenger banks, they are built around being a very lean organization. So they're very dependent on, you know, how quickly can I get a new service to market, you know, and, and then, but they're really good at understanding their customers. I think some of the big banks, the established bank, they rely so much on, um, on, uh, on their brand. And then because they're such a big institution, they believe people, they trust them and that they will come to them. But, you know, if you look at the flip side, I think they're missing a big point at the moment, because if you look at Generation Set, that's a big, big market. And they're really losing that market because they don't understand it. So they're still operating a model that is catering for maybe uh, robbers in my generation and our parents' generation. But at some point, you know, we, we got to thin out over time. You know, that means your customer base is going to be smaller and smaller. And actually, then you got the Challenger Bank, who is just, they keep it very simple, very few products, you know. So I, I get your point about, yeah, that we can do Bitcoin uh, uh, trading and all that. That's all fine. But what is that new market really want? What is your customers they want? I don't believe it's about I can offer everything. I think it's about really understanding your customers. What can I offer? But the bank has just been built up like this. You came in, you stayed for, 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 for years because um, I worked for Credit Suisse for a while. People, when they hit their 15 years, that was their uh, safe, uh, safe haven because if I get fired, I would leave with a really big packets. So that was kind of your threshold. But because you have an, a, 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 um, a culture that says, if you fail, you're just out. And that means nobody takes risks. Nobody wants to be uh, the single sign, uh, point of sign off and the single point of failure. So projects from my experience working with these guys, that always have to be six to seven people signing off every deliverable that you did on a project. So you can imagine how everything is just going to take longer and longer. So progression is not there. Innovation is really killed because we just need to deliver something. So we don't take the time to question it. But again, culture-wise, uh, senior sex don't want to be challenged. Um, so there's a lot of history and there's probably a lot more arguments than this one. But from my experience, it's just a, everybody's just want to survive. And uh, But I've always been a, a really much against uh, organizations where people they stay for their entire career because how do you bring new insights to a bank uh, or to your organization how do you bring innovation into to uh, to your thought process because you only experience working for one institution but every institution's got different ways of doing it sometimes we've got to venture out we've got to go out and we've got to explore new things we might even have to learn from new industries mm. you know but you find very much people in banks they stay in the same industry for their entire career it's crazy you mentioned a lot of those things because as a proud member of Generation Z, I remember, you know, being faced with the exact same. I think we talked about it uh, in a previous conversation about like how um, I think when I first moved to the UK, you know, I was I originally was going to try to get a bank with uh, Santander because like that was the yeah. bank, you know, of my dad and like, you know, um, just other members of my family, you know, they all recommended me to go to Santander first. And so I did that. And I think the Santander signup form was basically just like this long interrogation list. Yeah. They were asking me like, what kind of job am I working? How much income was I doing? Um, what was my national insurance number? Like just long questions after yeah. questions after questions that I barely knew the answer to. And then um, 
And then I think I had a couple other friends uh, within the startup space, you know, telling me like I was asking them like, hey, how do I get a bank account? They told me about Monzo. So yeah. I signed up for Monzo and then I answered two questions. And then two weeks later, I get a Monzo card. And I think, and, and I'm just like, yes, you know, I finally yeah. have a credit card. And it just, and then that's how I ended up getting converted over to a challenger bank is because like I really needed a bank account in a crunch situation. I couldn't keep yeah. swiping my American debit card and then like yeah. getting, get, and, then, and then losing all this money to conversion, to conversion charges. But that's because it's a reflection of how, um, uh, challenger banks they work because they have a very lean uh, operation that also means that the whole process for onboarding customers has to be extremely lean you know it has to be a pleasant uh, journey that you go for you can't complicate it but what you find in the more established banks is that we like to create complexity because that makes us feel more secure in our roles uh, and 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 it's just a different beast that you're dealing with. I'm not saying they're all like this, and there are some of them that are starting to open up to the fact that we need to start um, creating an ecosystem outside. You know, we can't we can't do everything because banks they used to think about themselves as technology companies. In those days, like your bank, that's your core business. Why do you need to do technology? Why don't you partner? Why don't you bring the best of best of breed in? You know, so it's really how you manage. But having said that, banks have been challenged over the years because you're not making the same amount of money you used to. Uh, so I think the bottom line is being challenged. That means your cost base has to be challenged. Mm -hmm. So innovation really has to be there. I just think it's, it, it, it's a generation shift it takes in those established banks to make it happen. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned those things because I think my next question kind of like relates to that a little bit, which is like, um, to in, in, in a manner that you feel that doesn't, you know, give away your entire IP, of course, how have you, how have you found, how have you managed to sell uh, a lot of like, you know, kind of like traditionally, you know, rigid and almost stubborn businesses on, on ideas such as like um, prototyping? It's, um, so I, I created my own kind of framework. Well, create, create, I, I guess what I did, I, I learned from experience and I looked at, what some good ideas we had out there that we could apply. But I, I normally just show them a quite simple graph that I have done because we, we take uh, you know one graph and that's what I said, you create a business case, then people buy into it and then you uh, quickly um, kind of create your blueprint and that becomes your project brief and you start, you assemble the team to build it and then you launch it. What the mistake you make, uh, and, and I think you need to show it to them. I think the mistake they, are, they understand afterwards, but you don't really get feedback until you deliver that project. And that's when you start to realize that actually customers are not buying into it, or even internal users are not buying into it. Because everything happened in, in, in very distinct uh, processes. And, and, and what you find, so first of all, I'm not a big fan of how we do business cases, because business cases are literally based on assumptions, uh, emotions, or sometimes the way we interpret data is completely wrong because we do it to support an agenda or a narrative we have. So we're not very dismissive of data that will go against your argument. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a boys club you find. I, I know I go a little bit back to banks again, but you've got to have these boys club where they, where they just agree on these things and they get so excited about it and then they launch it. So a bank I worked for before, and I use that as a good example, and it's a bit of an eye-opener for them because they know they're making those mistakes. But we talk to them about say, well, where is your ideas generated from? So we try to understand the portfolio and they tend to come from senior level, right? And they, they also manage the portfolio. 
then they agree, you know, they do some prototyping or not even prototyping, they do some blueprinting and they agree on that. They don't really challenge it. Then you actually hand it over the brief to your PMO function who mobilize the team, et cetera. But they don't really work closely with the business who will have to own the idea afterwards, whether that impacting your users or your customers. So you can see, you know, you, you, you're working very much in silos. So there's a lack of communication, there's lack of understanding. But once we then start talking, so we, we're talking about several steps we think you need to go through. First of all, it's help them look at their portfolio and really make sure it really ties back to their vision. Because you've got to have to argue why this, why do you think this is really a, an issue? Why do you want to solve it? And most often, you know, you just ask a simple question. So why is this a problem? What's the pains that you're trying to address? And if they can't answer those questions, I think you're almost there with them and said, that's brilliant, but you're just building something for the sake of it. So we normally encourage them and say, go through uh, small iterative steps to remove um, uh, your uh, uncertainty. Because what we want to do, we build our own data. So I'm very much on Alberto on this one. We build our own data to make us uh, say, uh, our own informed decisions. But because we start very simple with a prototype, that means just create an idea we can visualize so we can all look at it and we can all touch and feel it. And we can then get a line on that idea, you know, uh, and then we, could, we can move to prototype and then we can go to an MVP, but everything is iterative. So what we normally say is that you don't move out of that circle unless you really have the data support if the idea can go forward, if we, we all align on it and have it validated with customers. And it's really an interesting conversation to have. And it, it, some of them, I think you take them by surprise, but I think it really comes back to the fact that I'm not necessarily selling a process or an approach. I'm, I'm trying to really get to the core of what's their problems. We try to help them solve problems. And, and I think you really need to bear that in mind. If you can't understand the customer, understand their, their uh, thought process, and if you can't understand really what the issues are, I think it's quite difficult. But once we get to the point where we really understand what the problems they're dealing with, then it's a lot, lot easier to talk about. So let me talk you through this process. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we can do it in a much faster fashion. And this is how we can do it at a lot, lot lower cost than what you would normally do and what we can. So we can't guarantee 100%, but at least we know your probability of success is quite higher compared to if you go with the old tradition model. And they have to look at it because they're spending so much money on failed projects every single year. It's crazy because like, I think um, it was something that like was brought up um, on the last uh, podcast, uh, the last guest that was on our podcast, but like basically something that we talked about was like how a lot of governments are kind of notorious for like, you know, just uh, bringing in a lot of initiatives that they think will help people, yeah. but don't actually help people as much, right? So like, mm -hmm. I guess one example I see that is, you know, kind of like, kind of like the government furlough scheme I've seen, you know, uh, you know, uh, with what Rishi Sunak has been doing a lot in the United Kingdom. It's like, yeah. you, 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 on one hand, it's like you appreciate, you know, what uh, the, the things that they've been doing to, you know, make an attempt to help the citizens. But on the other hand, because they've never run a restaurant, because yeah. they've never, you know, run like an independent retail store, it's like, you're just not really hitting the core of like, you know, the assistance that we really, really need. And it's because yeah. you didn't prototype certain approaches to helping out these these firms that are already being hit really really hard in the in the pandemic exactly but you know what when, when i worked for credit swiss so i was part of setting up the digital strategy in asia and you, you know how asia works and you also know how much uh, in, in asia you, you love to have access to cash not everything can sit on a, on a card right exactly so building a digital bank because private banking is quite big in asia 
So, and it was interesting because I came in, I had to establish a team, but when we looked at the strategy and we really started to question it because we just found so many flaws because first of all, it was literally, it had got so many features on it. It was quite impressive, but it still came back to the, to the point. Who we built this for? Why would they use it? You know, and, and actually, again, it's the same approach. We've looked at all our competitors and we literally taken everything they do and we put it into one product. And but what we what the team demonstrated, they didn't, they haven't spoken to any customers, they didn't understand any personas. So we had to start breaking it down and say, well, there's a couple of elements. There's all the personas because people over 60 in Asia who doesn't use technology, why would they suddenly jump on a digital platform? Or can we change our business model? But then you also realize that if you if you live in Hong Kong, you can't trade shares in Singapore. So how you overcome that? So the legal aspect of it as well. So just by looking very quickly at that plan, we, we literally pulled it apart. So we had to go back uh, and, and and we used some, some of the similar principles, but we, we really had to go out there and we had to talk to customers. And, uh, and, and, and that just really changed everything. So suddenly we came back, we had a very good understanding of, the, uh, we had eight personas. We really start to understand in phases what to build. It's not going to be a big bank, but we literally divide into different phases. So it would run its own course and then it would be kind of a review all the time. And we would have continuous improvement in, in, incorporated into it. And it really what it comes back, and that's why the, the period of time for me is, in essence, it's just to keep it extremely simple and it's to create alignment and make sure that we all speak in the same language, we all go in the same direction and actually there's a market for what we're doing. We're not just launching something, but people like it because it creates a job. You, you safeguard your own job. If I can be a bit harsh here, but that's what people, they do. We create a project. If I got budget aligned for next three years, that's my job for next three years uh, safeguarded. And, and that's what, and I think we need to get, we need to get out of that way of thinking. I think we need to just look at it differently and say, if it's not going to work, accept it no emotions, we can just shove that idea, we move on to the next one, but we really need to, but we need to do it a lot, lot quicker. And that, that's the message that we normally bring to our clients and say, what if we can help you test 10 ideas very, very quickly at a very low cost? So I, I use a lot of the arguments because what they like to hear is, uh, can you help me save my uh, cost or save cost in my organization? Can you increase my revenue? Can you uh, optimize my processes? Or can you improve uh, customer experience? These are really four principles that most companies, they want to make sure we touch into any of those areas. Yeah. So I guess probably it comes more down to like almost of a, um, it's almost like a culture thing because, uh, yeah. you know, kind of when you were mentioning earlier about like people pursue a lot of big extravagant, extravagant projects and then like follow not necessarily like the best methodologies for being lean is because like they're worried about their jobs. And I think it's almost like, then you come down to, I think, almost like a natural, almost like human survival instinct, where it's just like, yeah. it's almost like I'm not as worried about the organization as much as like, I need to make sure that I can feed my family. I can yeah. continue to pay the mortgage on my Mercedes S class, my five bedroom house, my, my running jacuzzi with, uh, with digital set temperatures and a lot of different things. And just, I think, kind of like the pressure to, you know, maybe even maintain a certain lifestyle or provide for certain people um causes people to you know almost like pick the choose choose courses of action that like may not be as um may not be as conducive to organizational profit but it's yeah. great like when it comes to like a, a quarterly performance review something like that 
No, I agree with you, but I, I think it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a set of behaviors that needs to change, and and I think we just need to be more critical. You know, it's good to have all these ideas, but I think we need to recognize that ideas can come from more layers of the organization, and we need to encourage that. But we need to start more from a leadership, and how do we set up that structure? Because it's not just about saying everybody can innovate in the organization, everybody come up with ideas, but where do I go with my ideas? Does it get recognized? Do I get feedback on those ideas? It doesn't have to be, we just need to have an acknowledgement. But at the same time, I think we need to be more professional about how we pursue those ideas. So if we create a business case, make sure you've done all your groundwork so you can build the right business case. That means it's built on data that can actually support your theory. But I see a lot of business cases don't even have a hypothesis. So when we look at outcomes, they're looking at saying, okay, I believe, and you just got a question where they got the numbers from, but I said, I believe we can increase the business revenue by 20%. That's a really good sell. And that's what people get excited about, but we don't know if it's possible. So, you know, we sometimes just have to go back and say, let's test that hypothesis. Is it possible, you know, and just do it simple. But because everything we do, we learn, we need to create validated learning in our organization. But we get hooked on on numbers, and that's what we get seduced by. And yeah. you're right; it, it's a culture thing. It's it's a but that's how we always done business. I think now we're just changing the way we want people to look at business. Exactly, um, Robert. Sorry, you're gonna say some stuff. Oh, uh, you can you can probably take over for the next 10, 15 minutes. What were you, uh, what were you about to say? No, I was gonna make a comment that you make quite a list there of of the the typical person and all their expenses. I'm wondering if you have your own private list of things that you're willing you're trying to accommodate over the coming year. Your own cars, your own houses, your own real estate. I didn't know if you were you you were basically kind of positing that you had this dream about acquiring all of these things as well. <laughs> Maybe one day, maybe one day. I mean, okay. I'm, I'm, for myself, I'm a little bit more materialistically simple, but you know, a lot of people I know like like to have those things. So with just one Mercedes instead of 10 is what you're saying. You rather yeah. just like to, to simplify it to one of each. Just just one Mercedes. Well, you know okay. now, Jonathan, after Brexit, you won't even be able to afford a, a Mercedes. You have to stick to a local car from the UK. Rolls Royce. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and once you get started. Rolls Royce, not bad really. Not bad. If you have if you have the means, you have to invest in the parking lot. You have to make sure the garage is, is kind of extended. You know, you have to kind of like set the bed for all the the things you're going to acquire. So, the UK in most UK homes, they don't even have uh, parking garages. Like basically, uh, you're lucky if you even have this thing called off street parking. Um, so yeah, yeah, homes in the UK are like definitely not like the kinds in Texas. They're a lot smaller. They're kind of like shaped square. They're usually kind of lined up in big giant rows. Yeah. Well, that means you definitely have to relocate and go remote completely if you're going to need to get <laughs> like make room for that. So absolutely. Probably. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so Thomas, do you have any success stories when it comes to prototyping? Anything you want to share with us in the past where you've used the process to kind of help out clients or help individuals kind of see the, the value of being able to test the market through the, a scientific method that, that's prototyping? Well, we, we just had, so uh, I, I just had a client here before Christmas. Um, I, I think it was a combination of getting them to, to also apply design uh, sprints uh, and really try to, because as I said, they started with a very crazy roadmap. Um, but we really got them, so we, we got them to think about um, products rather than just features that you're going to build into a, a, a current platform. Um, and that was really interesting because as you can imagine, uh, the first, when they started on this, they all thought I'm going to come in and I'm going to solve my own problems. 
I think what they learned from it was we solving problems together, you know, we coming up with ideas, but rather than having a tech team going back and start to create an idea what how it's going to work with those features and actually make it workable, we just got them to illustrate it, you know, on, on building simple models. And it worked. Uh, and even, you know, uh, when I was Accenture, we did it with a client where we just used prototyping as, as you know, we're looking at HR systems. Well, we got, you know, and it was just simple things. And, and we did it all in one day. Uh, well, we just kind of came up with a lot of ideas. And you have to use your imagination. So is anything, you just had pens and cardboards or you can film in it, you know. But what it was really good, it was just, it was bringing an idea to life, you know. And then we would go around and we'd ask people and say, and kind of, so, you have to become very good at, I think one, one thing that's very important for me around prototyping is, is the narrative or the storytelling. It's, it's, you've got to sell that vision, that idea, that dream. Um, so we use it a couple of times and it, it, it's really interesting just to observe a room and see how people suddenly change their mindsets. They, they change the perspective of the world. And I think they start to realize the simplification sometimes is such an impact on future designs because we try to overcomplicate, we try to justify what we think customers they want. Uh, but for that particular client just before Christmas, they really bought into it now. So uh, we are actually looking at the next uh, wave of uh, sprints where we're going to go through the whole product product map they have in terms of what they want to uh, produce. But again, they just realized the initial option they had, we need to bring in a new team to build all these uh, features. Now we have completely changed that uh, game and say we actually need to let's just try to map it out and talk to customers what they think about these simple ideas and they start to see the pros because they can actually get answers very very quickly do you think there's a certain uh time span where a company or an organization or even individuals they need that runway to really be able to experience what prototyping is like um i think so i think there needs to be I think there needs to be an adjustment because you are upsetting some traditional ways of working. So I, I think for me, there's a, uh, I spend a lot of time with uh, my clients to educate them, you know, and uh, what we've done with one client was just, um, we just made something quite simple around what a design sprint would look like. We didn't do it a full blown one, but we had to get them in to understand the process. You know, we had to understand why we do it step by step. Uh, it, I think some companies would be more mature, but from the companies that I'm working with and from kind of the industries that I'm coming from, uh, it's an education piece first. Uh, and, and that's why, because I know Jonathan and I, we spoke about that uh, quite recently. It, if you just try to sell the process, I, I think it would be quite hard. For me, I would go back to my point before it's, it's, you got to have to get them to really understand the root cause of those problems. We've got to understand the problem. We've got to dig into the, to, to the details about what the actual root cause is. And once you then start, okay, I say that's a number of interesting uh, challenges we have. Now we start to introduce the simplified concepts. And that's really worked for me when we then come in and say, Let, let's just prototype this very, very quickly. Because what I've realized is companies, they work very much in silos. So it's actually a good way before you actually think whether you can use that prototype for anything uh, valuable. It helps you initially just to get teams to work together because we create something together. We now we can say, oh, hang on, that's not how I looked at the idea. You know, and suddenly we go into those discussions. So it's a bit of a learning curve for them. Um, 
So I, I, I definitely, I, I tend to look at the maturity of an organization before I even start to go into a full-blown process with them. And when do you know prototyping is not the proper method or process to use? Um, I would say, if we are not aligned on the idea, I have the same vision, I think prototyping is, but you do actually go into quite mature team who might have worked cross-functionally before, who seems to have a good understanding. And also if they, they constantly in dialogue with, uh, with customers, uh, so they might actually just build on existing ideas they already have as, as different technologies. So if they can do it very quickly, um, they, they just might go straight into a prototype for which they can demonstrate. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's, uh, I haven't really thought too much about it when, when I really think it's not. I, I just, uh, normally the, the, the types of companies I'm talking to, it's because uh, they have very simple, uh, very uh, complex processes. So uh, for me so far, prototyping has worked quite well because it helps them look at it very simply uh, or simplistically and it's very uh, simplified. And how do you see the process evolving? If you were to kind of project out a year from now and see how prototyping is being used, how would you kind of take what, what you understand of prototyping and what you apply to it and kind of build upon it? Uh, I think in many ways, uh, well, it, if we look at, uh, I think if we look back at 2020, I, I think that has been a, apart from all the uh, casualties we've had, but if, if you think about what happened in 2020, part of it has been a blessing in disguise because I think we now started to disrupt businesses. I think business had to think very quickly. What I found is a lot of companies, because the companies I spoke to last year was very much in survival mode. I think suddenly they realized we need to do something quickly, but I don't know what to do. So for me, I, and the conversation we have is, this is a concept to say, don't overcomplicate this. We can actually help you very, very quickly to put ideas together. But first of all, I always start with the portfolio. It's, it's first of all, look at that and we need to challenge that portfolio. But if they want to test some of those ideas, they're not really sure about how to prioritize it. You know, prototype for us has been really good to, uh, as a tool because we need to we, I, we need to pivot a lot quicker than we used to. And I think that any industry is going to be under enormous pressure. Uh, I can only see this, and but as, talking from my experience, I can only see how this can evolve over time now, because I think we're pushing some boundaries, but we need, we need to be able to make quicker decisions on the right ideas. I don't think we have the luxury at the moment to make uh, the wrong decisions, but you just can't, you know, I just don't think the funding is there to go through these very extensive programs that we've seen in the past. I think we need much more certainty up front. Yeah, or have a conversation of how things are going to go. I think the old way of doing the extended version of work as we know it is going to end. And the idea that you can actually leverage online work and the environment that people work in for their own benefit is going to increase, which would yeah. bring into prospect things like pensions and, yeah. and, and life insurance and other things that people sometimes take for granted and that are slowly being chipped away over time. So it's, a, it's an interesting narrative just to see how, where things go. Yeah, but you know what, it, it, it's just, uh, you enter into those conversations, but it's just a, a couple of very simple questions you ask them, you know, but if you start, as I said, you, you challenge the data, but really, if you start challenging why they're trying to build it, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Because you want to get them to think. If they can't answer that uh, and they're still passionate about the idea, well, 
let's keep it simple. So, so we can change that conversation, but, uh, but we normally challenge them a lot because I grew up in a, in a consulting uh, industry where, you know, if clients said they had a problem, we will find a solution to it. So we will tell you how we can do this and how many Mondays and, you know, and how long it will take. But there is also an end part to this, and if it doesn't succeed, who's going to take the blame for it? And, and, and I think we, companies, they just, just can't uh, spend that amount of money anymore. They, they really have to be careful how they invest their money. So you start to create that uh, scenario to why this is a very good way of doing it. Um, would it happen overnight? No, I don't think so, because I think there are companies that need to kind of change the way we're working and, and the process. But I just think we're going to see more of it. And I think the arguments are, are there. And I think they're there in order for us to, to grab them and, and, and move on with it. And prototyping be used for something besides sales. Um, what, what do you mean? Um, well, most of the skin in the game that you get from prototyping as outlined in the right, it has to deal with intention commerce, things where people are going to give you something in exchange for what you're offering, email, phone number, contract, yeah. money, down payment. But what I found in a recent exchange is that there's another type of prototype that involves uh, redirecting attention. So if someone wants to pay, give, have more people pay attention to a feature or an add-on to their product, then they switch from actually people putting skin in the game to redirecting attention towards that particular one. And then the skin in the game is the actual add-on um, acceptance. Like they basically add it to their, their, their um, account or they opt in for some program and then they can use the analytics to turn the to determine how many choices were made. Um, so that was, that was kind of the origin of my question is that are yeah. there different types of prototypes out there beyond just kind of uh, asking for some sort of uh, intentional commerce? So uh, because of a lot of my background, I've said uh, being around transformation and really working on operating models. Um, the way we always got skin in the game is the way we involve people in the process. So actually, once they become part of the uh, design of how the model will look like and, and, and the roles, that's when we tend to get skin in the game because what we're not doing anymore, we might give an outline of what it could look like and then we might feedback on it. But really, uh, some of the things that we have learned, because I, I believe, and, and the reason I go back to this particular example is because I believe innovation comes from all the different sides of an all. It's not just about products and services, but it's also how do we operate? Uh, and uh, so I'm very keen around processes. And um, but from my experience, once we get people to really start thinking about and say, if we're going to change that organization, we're going to create, let's say, more responsibilities, we're going to distribute it. It's not just leadership who can make decisions. What would your role look like? What could it do? How could we do it better? So we sometimes open up that dialogue and we get them to actually look at how they can design their own functions, their own roles. Uh, doesn't say we're just going to sign it off, but what we find is that once they can start influence, because they bring a lot of their own experience in, especially working with customers, that's really where we get skin in the game. Because my view has always been, if you design something and you can't come and tell me afterwards, I don't like it because you, you, you had an input, you had an influence of how that role could look like or that job function or how that process could look like. Because I've worked a lot with uh, companies where we create uh, communities of practice. And what we actually try to do is that in-house, they need to kind of own process. They need to own the learning and the training and the mentoring. So you create communities where we learn constantly from each other. 
So it's not necessarily, so you might be giving direction by leadership, but they don't make all the decisions. So you're given the freedom to make the right decisions. So you almost become a sandbox, but at the same time, you will have an influence. So give you an example around GDPR, which was big here in Europe about data protection. And I work with a life science company where we said, but I can't design all your, the training because I don't know what's going to look like because I don't know what your challenges are. So we created an environment where we say, we have to learn along this process. So every time we have an exception to a process and we can't answer that question from a customer, we take that away. We might make judgments called, but we have to validate that learning. If that then means that we have to change something in our roles or job descriptions, or we have to change the process, or we have to create learning, that became that ownership of that group. And that's really where we get skin in the game because that you guys have to educate yourself. You have to make sure you constantly minimize risk. So we kind of give it back to, to the right owners. So it doesn't become something we push from the top down and enforce on people. We get them really to own it. And for us, that really gives skin in the game because you have to constantly do all these small uh, kind of tests and prototypes in terms of what it can do. So they're not necessarily going to say, hey, go, that's the next big learning program you need. But you need to go back, you need to look at an idea, we, we create discussions around what impact it could have. So it's a way of prototyping what impact that could have on, on for example, your learning program, on your processes, and on how you're structured, what roles we need to have. Uh, so so that, that's where a lot of my focus sits as well, and really work uh, with people to get that skin in the game. But again, it, it's back to what I said earlier, it's, it's really around for people empowerment. You know, you've got to have to give people the opportunity to actually learn on their own accord, make the mistakes, uh, but validate that learning and then we move on. Yeah, so um, let's, uh, so with that, let's kick off the game with, uh, with both of you guys. So um, at the end of every podcast, we'll do a quick design that breeder type where basically um, on the spot, you have to figure out how to, uh, you, you would figure out basically what your hypothesis would be and how you would basically, in one or two sentences, prototype a given product or service, assuming that they have not been invented yet, right? So kind of would have to take your mind back to a mental time machine. So the first challenge I'm going to give you, Tom, is um, how do you prototype a forced induction cooking stove? Yeah, I, I really saw that one. I, I think that was not a, a nice one. Uh, what do I know about <laughs> forced induction stove? But anyway, it's... Um, it, uh, I, I think it's really good because uh, if I think it from a hypothesis point of view, you know, you probably want to establish it's uh, because first of all, who are we targeting? So who do I set this hypothesis up for? You know, if I, let's say we go for the, for, for the younger market, you know, I'm probably going to say uh, we set it up, you know, we, we say we want to achieve X percentage of it, let's say generation set because in, in this particular market in the UK, because we like to do more home cooking, you know, uh, so I'll definitely run some tests and, and, and see how that would work, you know, and, and you can argue, you know, how many of them have actually done their own cooking because we live in a society where we, we do a lot more takeaway, we order things, you know, but it will help us really quickly understand and say, do we have a market for this, you know, do actually the young generation want to buy into this? Because the whole point is um, they might not see their focus being in the kitchen. So uh, the whole idea might be killed off and it might be something that our generation have used, but Again, I just need to gather the data to understand if that concept would work. Uh, and I think it goes back to a previous example I gave before is, but how well do we understand the market? Do we just think it's a good idea? Mm -hmm. 
How about you, Robert? How would you prototype a forced induction cooking stove? I wouldn't. I would give it over to Jonathan and yourself, or I would give it to Thomas to That's do. A very clever answer. No, I, it's not my deal. No. Um, <laughs> just I would. I my engine. See, part if you read it the the right it in the back of the book, it says that in order for you to have a successful prototyping uh, kind of campaign, you have to be intrinsically motivated to what you're doing. Absolutely. So. For me, I wouldn't, the, the, what you're describing is something that doesn't really kind of correspond to what I'm after. But um, there's a couple of things that I would. So maybe a, a question to, to Thomas here is, is that if you were to give me a, a, a market engagement hypothesis of something you've been thinking about, then maybe it's up to me and, and Jonathan to potentially explore an XYZ with you. So, um, if this can be Thomas. This could be something that you're dealing, you're doing personally, like workouts or, um, you know, getting a new car, or it could be something professionally where you want to kind of explore something with your business. What would your marketing engagement hypothesis be of of some idea you've been kind of thinking about, if you would, would like to disclose it on the podcast? Um, I, I think one thing that could be interesting to explore with you guys because. Um... If you think about lockdown and it's putting a lot of restriction on us, but I'm really into exercising, you know, and, but exercising, you know, because you might go to the gym, you might go to a clock because you like the social aspect. So it'd be interesting to kind of look, look at, uh, you know, how do we prototype a, an engaging exercising model that still, well, we can use technology, but we can still get together, you know, and, and we still kind of achieve our goals. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm just because we're so isolated currently now because we're in a really tough lockdown again here in the UK. So people really feel isolated. But how do we maintain that? Because exercise is really healthy for us, but at the same token, we also need to uh, socialize with people. But how do we keep that? How do we create a test for that, for example? So the, the interest is to, to get people to socialize a bit better um, with, with, the, with the, the, the just the pandemic. Um, are there existing market solutions that you're aware of that could kind of fit what you're talking about? Uh, not necessarily what I'm aware of. That, that probably are. I probably are. But uh, so, for example, I give it because I do take wonder, but I just rock up and I do it in front of Zoom. And that's it. So you do your half an hour, 45 minutes, and then you log off. That's it. So you kind of lose that social uh, aspect very, very quickly. But I'm not really, I, I know that's the Peloton thing, but then you need to buy the Peloton because then you get into that community. But not everybody can afford to buy that kind of tool hmm. or equipment. Okay. So um, I, I'm, I'm fishing for what kind of product or service you're thinking about. Is this, is this a socialization tool or what, what is, what's the vision for this? I, I, I think it would be a, it is a combination because it, it you, you're going to have to have some kind of, uh, I, I guess I'm fishing for some, uh, there's something around technology because that's how we communicate at the moment. But how do we create a, um, or even if there's a market, is there a market for a community-based exercising uh, community where we literally say, we do exercise, we do things together, but you also, you, you share ideas with, uh, with your community, maybe we gamify it. Uh, I'm just thinking about what keeps you motivated because at the moment you have to find your own strengths and you have to find your own motivation to go out the door. But sometimes we get encouraged by people to actually uh, exercise. That's why you might get out the door because you've got to be at some place at a certain part time in, 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 uh, on the day. 
Um, so it might be a bit broad topic, but uh, I'm just thinking, it, it, because we're talking so much about men. So I think it's about social, I think it's about exercise, I think it's about mental health. I think, uh, I think probably I could, we could try, there's a couple of things, right? I got one idea for if you're stuck at home and one idea if you're like, if you're, if you're thinking about going outside, okay? So if you're stuck at home, you could do a thing where like you go to like an exercise group on like either um, you start off with like either um, what's it like Facebook or like my networks or, um, or Reddit. And then you can do something like at least 20% of middle-aged adults that are passionate about, uh, passionate about exercise will attend uh, um, a 30 minute kind of like um, a 30 minute core exercise, a group core exercise workout and then um, on Zoom. And then that's like something you can include in like kind of like push-ups, the side, the side stand thing where like you got to like stretch your legs like a scissor and uh, Superman's um, burpees and um, sit-ups and a lot, of, a lot of those types of things. And then you could try to prototype that with like um, with a group of um, middle-aged businessmen or something like that. And then um, and then if you're gonna, and then if you're, and then if you want to extend it to go outside, you could try something like at least twenty percent of, at least twenty percent of, I don't know, maybe tech entrepreneurs or uh, or businessmen mm-hmm. uh, would be willing to go go on a would be willing to go on a group on a group kind of like WhatsApp run where like say everybody is like has wireless headphones on and everybody's running at the same time but they're connected on sort of like a whatsapp group call kind mm-hmm. of narrating over their run and so everyone's kind of like chatting with each other while running in their own respective neighborhoods that was a good idea you know it's uh but i guess it's it's uh i i guess where the the idea i'm not sure it could work but it's uh it, it was just trying to address some of the challenges we have in today's society because I, I think we see all this pressure. Uh, you know, people are locked up in their own homes. You know, we don't, and, and sometimes we, we, the, the social banter you have when you're out and about, you know, and is there actually a market for that? You know, because you could easily say, you know, if you can capture a certain percentage of that market, I keep because as you probably see now in the UK, Jonathan, we start to deal with obesity again. Uh, yeah. We have done for a long time, but it's actually getting worse. Uh, alcohol consumption has gone up. Uh, the sale of sweets and biscuits have gone through the roof. And uh, we just try to <laughs> treat ourselves very differently in, in this pandemic. Not as uh, horizontal as in Texas, though. I think what's the obesity rate in Texas, uh, Robert? Is it somewhere around like 45% or something like that? Yes. <laughs> You know what? I don't think we're far off in the UK. It's uh, it's really gone bad. You know, it's uh, it's it's the kind of food we're eating. We, the Brits, they like their comfort food. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. All right. So I don't have a whole lot of questions left. Uh, Robert, do you have any? It looks like in the when they did a. A study in 2019, the obesity rate for in Texas were 34.8% of Texans were obese. That's a lot of obesity. Um, but it's 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 but but it's not the the best. It's actually tenth highest. Who's um, number one? I'm about to find out. As long as I'm allowed to. Um, Alaska, Alabama, Louisiana. I might just throw some um, deep south states out there. Try to see if outline still works. No, 
Outline's been, it doesn't seem to be any, remember, you know the, uh, the um, browser extension outline? You ever, have you ever heard of that before, either of you? No. No. So Outline is a Chrome extension that when it first came out, you could bypass any paywall that you encountered. So anything related to, um, anything related to like things where it goes, you want your, want your ad blocker to be off. Um, it basically will take the scrape the page for any HTML and just basically take the content and reframe it into something into like a very simple way of kind of displaying it. Um, let's see. That's quite some shocking numbers that you gave us there, you know, because I think if we're just looking at the NSS or the health service here, how much pressure is they're already on? And then you got if you've got obesity, because that puts more pressure on your health services. Yeah, you got to stop eating so much cookies and cakes, and uh, yeah, you know, start start eating your your salads and your your veggies. Exactly, I tend to stay away from all that anyway. So, <laughs> so they have some updated information. Uh, it's 2019, but it looks like it's a little different than what the story was putting on. Let me see. I bet you the mm -hmm. lowest is somewhere oh. in Asia. It went down actually. So the the highest. So take a guess to the both of you. Um, what do you think is the in the state in the United States has the most obesity? In the state, Ooh. Louisiana. Why would you say Louisiana? Uh, deep South cooking. You know, there's a thing. There's a there's there there's like a thing in the U.S. that that's like pretty famous called deep South cooking, and it's just basically fried chicken with uh with with like mashed potatoes tons of gravy and like um and boiled i think it's boiled they call it collard greens but i think it's more like just boiled kale or something like that i was thinking about florida but that's because i see there's a pensioner state and then all what, what you got left to do they just eat and drink don't they i don't know i, I might be harsh here but uh... maybe maybe okay so uh to let you know between so so to, to get it right thomas picked florida and um, I think it was uh, Jonathan, you had Louisiana, correct? Yeah, I had yeah. Louisiana. Okay, so Jonathan, you're actually uh, way off in terms of obesity. You actually picked the healthier part of the healthier state of the union. <laughs> wow. So Florida is ranked 44th. It only has a 27% obesity rate. Um, but in the same token, uh, the one there's two states that are tied for 49th. One is the District of Columbia, and the other one is Colorado with a 23.8% obesity rate, which is still one in four people. Wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. Uh, and for Jonathan, uh, his pick of Louisiana was ninth. That has a 35.9% obesity rate, um, and it's plus or minus 1.8%. And I think there was like an interfield there too. The state that takes the crown, though, is Mississippi. Oh, uh, it. Man. It's 40%, 41% if you round up obesity rate. That means how fat people are. <laughs> no, I'm talking about how fat people are. What? So Alden, I want you to, so I'm gonna have my son play this game. Alden, I want you to tell me what state in the United States has the most fat people. Massachusetts. Massachusetts? Okay. Massachusetts or Mississippi? You gotta choose one. Massachusetts? Okay. All right. So for the record, Massachusetts, uh, in terms of its obesity rate, is actually 47th. So it's, okay, it's, so it's, 
you were overhearing our conversation, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he guessed Mississippi second time. Okay, so now that we've figured out how fat everybody is in the United States, I think that's a good stopping point for the podcast and kind of leave it out there. Uh, Thomas, if you people want to find out what you're all about and what you're up to, uh, where should they go online? Uh, they can go to you go to my website, which is uh, bluespace.com. It's, it's spelled with set. So S P A C E, or yeah, you can look at my, you can look me up on my LinkedIn profile. I try to be more proactive and talk about. Uh, I, I I like to share ideas, and actually, if people want to sign up, they can always contact me on my email, which is Thomas at bluespace.com. Uh, we run a number of webinars, so we run a series before Christmas, uh, which talked a lot about um, how do we manage innovation in in uncertainty or in certain markets. We're going to talk more about uh, structures and we're probably going to touch more on uh, and bring in uh, customers um, that's going to talk more about how they're running their innovation and uh, and probably going to be a, a section around prototyping as well. Um, and my last and the last part of that is going to be around um, uh, people dynamics and high learning organizations, something I'm quite passionate about because I always believe that if we start with the people, the rest will follow. And when is this again? When is this happening? Uh, so the, the days we haven't set them out yet for, for the new year, um, but uh, they will be announced very soon. Okay. And for we record, you know. for, cool. And for reference, your last name is spelled P-O-E-D-E-N-P-H-A-N-T. And exactly. if you're going to do the search on LinkedIn, LinkedIn or Google, that's, that's definitely what you want. Yeah, to you're not going to find many with that name, so uh, it should be straightforward. <laughs> It's going to appear at the top of the Google Analytics rankings. It's like yeah, so uh, there's only it's a quite unique name. I'm originally from Denmark. I think we are three branches with that name. About hundred people in total who's got that surname in Denmark. So I'm probably the only one in the UK with that name, apart from my family. Although if there is a homecoming back in Denmark for the name, then you can basically come back and say, oh, here's where all my tribe was. And if you all exchange business cards and you can all come away with some with something unique. Absolutely, absolutely. Or get them on a Zoom call. Say any Thomas Fedefens, just go ahead and dial into this <laughs> on this day and let's see what, what the variation is. And everyone just kind of does a little bit of exchange from there. Absolutely. Right, well, uh, Jonathan, you want to close us out? Um, thanks for being on the podcast, Tom. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, tune in as 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 we just mentioned. Um, you know, contact Tom on you know all the aforementioned social media channels. And uh, remember, everybody, fail Ferrari fast, McDonald's cheap. <laughs>